I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, and we were having a little conversation. I was telling Pastor, you know, with Amber's playing, we really don't need a sermon today, but he's already prepared and he showed up, so will you let him preach today? Okay, yeah, okay. Um, this church is blessed with people who serve, not just Amber. I just like to embarrass her because she's my little sister in the Lord. And, uh, but we have incredible people serving behind the scenes. And I walk through the church campus a lot, mainly because I'm under conviction when Wayne preaches, but I like to make sure things are going well. And I love seeing all the ladies teaching downstairs. There's guys working behind the scenes. So thank you all for the way you serve. And if you're not serving, we have opportunities for you. Some announcements today. Uh, fellowship lunch today. We have plenty of food. So if you're visiting or if you didn't prepare anything, come on over to the fellowship hall and, and get to meet people. Moms and dads, we have youth choir practice each Sunday after the morning service, and here's an important part of it. It's for children seven years old and up. There's a crib shower downstairs for baby boy Hargraves and baby girl Whites coming up, so take advantage of that. And Isaac has downstairs on the normal free table we cleared it off for prayer cards from the, the latest Anchored in Truth True Church Conference. So there's cards down there. I encourage you to, to take one. There's, I don't know, 20 of them. So take some and pray for the missionaries, and this will help you out. My wife does this a lot. <coughs> Thank you, Andy. This week's verse is, comes from John chapter 10, and if you don't follow us on social media, we're starting to put some of the things out there for you, and one is each week, and I thank Paul Kennemer for organizing this, is we'll put these meditation memory verses up. Uh, I call them that because sometimes we don't want you to feel the pressure of having to memorize it perfectly, but certainly think about it. That's what we mean by meditation. Uh, they're very helpful. And however you want to do that, but we want to find different ways to encourage you to get into the Word and to think about the Word. And here's a great passage of Scripture from John chapter 10, Christ speaking to His people and something for us to think about in preparation to worship Christ today. I'll read this. I'll give you a moment to reflect privately on this, to pray, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let me read the text for you from John chapter 10 and verse 27. Here's Jesus speaking, and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment, and then I'll pray for us.
Father, we have gathered here together as sheep in, in your flock. We praise your holy name for sending the good shepherd to speak to us. I pray indeed we would hear his voice and follow Christ. May our life be characterized by following Christ. May we have the assurance that not only do we know Christ, but that Christ knows us. And what great privilege that is to have the love of God bestowed upon us through the person of Jesus Christ. To be united with Christ, to be buried with him in his death, to rise to a newness of life. I pray, Father, that that hope that we have in Christ will be that which overcomes whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in from day to day. I pray that all anxiety, doubt, depression, fear, all of that would fall away as we focus more and more on Jesus Christ. And what a great promise it is, and what a great privilege it is to be able to draw near to you because of Jesus Christ. And even though we can't speak in the way that we would like to speak before you, we know that even you have sent the Holy Spirit to plead on our behalf. And you will hear our voice, and you will keep us. And what a great delight that is that we indeed may ultimately be united in perfection before your throne in the fullness of joy. I pray, Father, as we gather together today for anyone that is outside that hasn't really heard the voice of Christ, may they hear it indeed today. For those who have been feeding on uh, lesser things, may Christ be increasingly um, satisfying indeed today. May we hear Christ in all that we do, in our prayers, in our reading, in our singing, in the proclamation of your word. May we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Well, good morning. 1 John 3, 2 tells us, when he appears, we will see him as he is. So even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 612, and we'll sing face to face with Christ my Savior. 612. Thanks, Dad. 
turn back a couple pages to number 606. 606, and we'll sing, The Way of the Cross Leads Home, Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. attention to chapter 27 of the book of Acts. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 936. This is the word of God. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adminium, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put the sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him lean to go to his friends to be cared for. And putting out the sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us, and we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lydia. There was a centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for, slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty in Christius, 
and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lazarus. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a nor'easter, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Caltia. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat, and after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the cistrus, they lowered the gear, and they were driven along, and since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard and their own, with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of us being saved was at last abandoned. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and before God has God has granted you all those who have sailed with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that there will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look at your word and we see how you make provision for your children and for those around them. And there's a protection, a general protection that you bestow on all of us. Father, you, you watch over your children. You take care of their needs. You give us perceptions and knowledge of what you're about to do. Sometimes we, we should offer counsel to the people around us as a warning of your providence and of your completeness and control of all things in this world 
and everything about it. In the governments of men, in the hearts of men, both evil and good, you control it for your purposes. And Father, we just ask you to help us be on the right side of it. Help us to study your word. Help us to perceive the signs that you laid before us as you did in Paul's life. And Father, we just pray that you would watch over us, watch over our pastor as he brings the word today. In Jesus' name I pray.
Well, please take your hymn books and let's stand together and turn to number 257. We'll sing Cross of Jesus, Cross of Sorrow as we sing and contemplate the crucifixion. Philippians 2.8 says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. 257. I am resolved. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We'll sing the first, fourth, and fifth, one, four, and five of 378.
right, Gamber and ladies. And I pray that's your prayer as well, that you would be resolved to follow Christ. Let's look at his word this morning. And I want to talk about a promise kept. One of the ways to look at the Old Testament is promises made. From the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, God promised in the curse on Satan that he would send a son, a seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. In doing so, he would bruise his heel. He would suffer. He would die. And we know how that fleshes out. God had made that promise and Christ did come. He did live among us. He did take on our sin. He did die. He was buried and he rose again. And he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. God keeps all of his promises. And it is that assurance then that we could have hope in this life and in this world. In Hebrews chapter 10, this preacher has been continuing a sermon, really. And this section here in chapter 10 is the final part of where he started in chapter 8, where he talked about a promise. He talked about a promise that they were all too familiar with, and that is the promise of a new covenant or a new promise. And the new promise is new because it, it, it supersedes, it fulfills, it replaces the old covenant. The Hebrews, the title here, these were Jewish Christians. They came to Christ. They knew all about a promise of a Christ to come. But now Christ has come, and they have put their faith in him. And yet they are troubled by the culture in which they live. They feel the draw to go back to do what everyone else is doing. It was the society of their day, the religion of their day, to go backwards to Judaism. Didn't God, after all, install that? Well, he did. But he did so for a purpose, and that it, it would point to the one that would fulfill and keep all those promises made, and there is only one, Jesus Christ. And so to walk away from him is to leave the living God. And you, you might say, well, I, I'm not a Hebrew, I'm not a Jew, and so how does this apply to me? It certainly does. Anything outside of Jesus Christ is walking away from the living God. And so whether you're embracing a cult, another religious system, uh, or the ideology of the day, anything outside of Christ, you will not have your sin atoned for. And that's a big problem. In fact, if you notice in verse 17, as he, as he gets to that, the, the result of all of this, this promise that God has made is that, in a sense, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's a big statement because sin is a big problem. That promise was made 
all the way back with the prophet Jeremiah. It's being fulfilled and kept by this one, Jesus Christ. In fact, as Paul would think about Jesus Christ and, and why we preach Christ, why we proclaim Christ, why we are so Christ-centered, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. What he's saying is it is only in Christ that they are fulfilled. God has made many promises. They are fulfilled, all of them, in Christ. And that is why he would say, <coughs> then we utter our amen for his, to God for his glory. You see, before time, as we know it, began, God determined ahead of time, we call it God's decree, that he would manifest or display or show his glory in the redemption of a people for his own name, that he would indeed triumph over sin. That's what all this is about. In fact, to help us understand how would that, what would that look like, that God's wrote down the name of those who would be redeemed in the very book of life, as it's described by way of analogy, of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. See Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. Now how could God write it down before it all began, including the Lamb that would be slain? God decreed, we would say, from the very beginning. The promise really is a revelation of what God has decreed to accomplish. Here in this text, as this preacher is reminding his people about the promise made, this promise is to remember your sin no more. The Father has decreed in eternity past to do this very thing. The Son, in time, has actually accomplished it. And it is, it is applied, if you will, by the work of the Holy Spirit until he brings in all that are written down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Salvation is a lot greater than you could ever imagine. From our perspective, we can't see all of that because we can't reach back to eternity past. But this is what God has declared in his holy word. And so even if it's too great for me to grasp and understand, I believe what his word actually said. God began before I did, and he will continue forever and ever. God has made a promise. He will fulfill it. And God has determined to demonstrate his glory, various aspects of it, in the redemption of a people for his name. God does this not because he is needy or lonely. God is a triune God, as we, as we understand from Scripture. And, and I even mentioned that Scripture earlier about in, in John chapter 10, where Christ says, I and the Father are one. That is a one of perfect unity, of perfect love, <clears throat> of perfect contentment, of perfect satisfaction. There is no lack in God. So what, why does he bother redeeming man? It is to 
display the glory of his grace, to show his glory. The magnitude of his love is seen and on display in a greater way. John would say in his first epistle in 4.10, this is love. What's love? Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. That is to pay or make atonement for our sin. You want to know what real love is? That is real love. That is mercy, grace, faithfulness, patience, kindness. However you wish to explain it, it is hard to capture all of it, but you can see the picture. It is God condescending, taking on human flesh, walking among us, taking on our sin, dying on the cross, rising again and ascending to glory. That is what he has done. It demonstrates his love towards us. This, by the way, was not an afterthought. This was thought out from the very beginning. A lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had determined to do this, to put forth, and that's the best way I can explain it, some aspects of, and I think all of them, we, we just have a hard time grasping, the, the manifold, or as Peter calls it, the multicoloredness of his grace, uh, even in shades that, that we cannot perceive or grasp, it is on display. It is on display of his sacrificial love in the very creation of the first human soul. Paul would explain to the church, at Rome in this way, for those who he foreknew. The foreknew isn't that he just knew about who he was going to create in time. The foreknew has the idea of foreloved. That, that is, determined to have a relationship with. He determined this to manifest his love on these before the foundation of the world. So he plans it out, hence predestined. That's what it means. It means to plan out ahead of time. Of course, because it wouldn't happen otherwise. God decreed from the very beginning. He, he, he determined to display his love in his foreknowing. To be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That, that is, God would redeem a people, a rebellious people, and change the very trajectory and nature of their heart that they would be conformed to Christ. That is, they would look like Christ. And in our text in Hebrews, as we'll see in a second, that will go all the way to perfection. Not that you're going to be Christ, not that you're going to be God in any way. You'll always be a creature, but you'll be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? Sin will be done away with. If it was done away with, this would be, world would be fantastic and glorious. It is what we're looking for, the, the panacea to all problems and ills. The man has this mind of a utopian world. Well, it does exist. It exists in Christ. That's what we're saying. And only in Christ. Because sin must be dealt with and done away with. And God shows his great mercy and his love by sending the Son to make that payment, to make that appeasement for our sin, that we then might be to the, might be the firstborn among 
uh, many brothers, that Christ would be the firstborn and would lead others into that union with God, that we would be children of God and called brothers, sisters, family, adopted into God's family, to be children of God. So how does he accomplish it? Those that he predestined, that is planned ahead of time, he also called. My sheep, Jesus said, will hear my voice. So this is why we just proclaim the voice of Christ and pray that you would hear it, because the sheep will hear it. It's the means by which they're called. And there's something supernatural that all of a sudden, this actually means something. It isn't something we can generate by some, I know I'm passionate about this because I'm speaking of what he's done to me, but, but I'm not doing this trying to manipulate or motivate you in that way. I just want to preach Christ. And I want you to hear his voice, to follow him. Because all of those that he called, he justifies, that is, declared perfectly righteous before God. That is, your sin is gone. And everyone he justifies, that is, declares righteous, is then said to be glorified. You'll find that in Romans 8. Glorified means perfect. No sin. Absolute perfection. We can imagine to some degree what that might be like, but whatever imaginations are, they're not high enough. It's fullness of joy. We only know partial joy, temporary joy. I don't even think we're in this state that we're in have the ability to appreciate that to the fullness of what it is. But all of this is accomplished. It is going to be accomplished through one person, that is Jesus Christ, who will perfect forever those that are in him. It is just another way of expressing the same thing, of being before God, made perfectly righteous in Christ. Notice the terms of perfection that are mentioned. Again, we're not talking about your perfections or your accomplishments in the sense that you have done this. But this is the work of Christ. So let's look once again to Hebrews chapter 10, and we will focus towards the end here, and as he's really repeating some of these aspects to the people. He's reminding them what this whole system was about. It's appointing to Christ who, in actuality, will bring about this glorified state for all that are in Christ here as expressed as perfection. We'll just go ahead and read it in its context and finish it out as then he quotes this promise of Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 31, of the New Covenant. Begin of verse 1. For since the law <coughs> has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered, continually offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. That's what I'm talking about. It can't make perfect. Can't bring out glorification, can't bring out perfect righteousness. Otherwise, they would not have been ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any, and here's the important phrase, consciousness of sins. Hmm. 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you've neither desired or taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for, a, for all time a single sacrifice of sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has, here it is, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, when I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For there is forgiveness of these. There's no longer any offering for sin. It is done. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would gain insight into your holy word today. <coughs> well, may we hear what Christ would say to his people indeed this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm going to try to see what I can do in the time that I have to talk about three concepts, at least, from this particular covenant that is being referred to, this new covenant in, as promised by Jeremiah. But, but notice here this idea of how sin is being addressed. And he says in verse 2 about consciousness of sin in particular, consciousness of sin. And I kind of alluded to at the very beginning, sin, beloved, is the greatest problem mankind faces. Disease, destruction, death, all of them find their source in sin. We might think about wars and famine, pestilence, natural disasters, political conflict. We might think of those as our great threats in this day. In fact, some people are so enamored with various things that aren't even happening, they've redefined one classification um, as climate change. I don't know about you, but I've, been, I've lived over 60 years and climate always changes, but that's another topic for another day. But it does show the futility of man's mind thinking they can actually control the weather. Can I give you a hint? You can't. 
Try as you might. Oh, you might make some little splash, but you don't control it. And the futility is to think that you do. You, you don't control the population of the world. You don't control the weather. What nonsense in the mind of man. Bad things are going to happen. I mean, we should try to protect ourselves the best we can, for sure. But inevitably, it will happen. The words Jesus spoke in Luke, Luke 13, still ring true in my mind when they addressed him about natural disasters that killed a lot of people and then uh, political crimes that where someone went in and terrorized and, and killed others within the temple. And Jesus said simply this, repent. Or likewise, you'll perish. He's not being hard-nosed about it. This is God who has great compassion. But it's the truth to know this, that, that sin is deadly. And we like to put it out of our minds and forget about it, even when we're reminded about it when things go bad. I hate sin. I wish I hated it more. Don't you? It's awful. It's awful, and one of the benefits of it, I guess, in, in the sense of a benefit, would be it just reminds us that, one, we can't do anything about it on ourselves, and two, we'll have to look for someone who can. Can I tell you the good news is Christ, because he can. We, we, we have to put our hope and trust in God, trust in his holy name. As the psalmist would put it this way in Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. When everything else fails, I pray that you would have this bedrock in your heart that that is the love that ultimately matters. Chesed is the word for steadfast here in, our, in Hebrew, translated steadfast in our um, English Bible, it, it is, it is a, a, a word of multicolored grace. It's about God's patience, his love, his kindness, his mercy, everything rolled up together. Describe who God is. And when everything falls apart, it, the, the, the one good thing about it is to keep you from grasping on those things that fall apart. And, and a lot of times you really have no, um, you, you have no control over that. But God does. And he always does. He is faithful. He is steadfast. God has given us all a conscience. Redeemed and unredeemed. All humanity has a conscience. That is an inner voice, if you will. A, an awareness of what might be right or wrong. Paul would tell the church at, at Rome, so I think I'm just making this up. He, he talks about th there even among unbelievers in chapter 2, verse 15, that the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience bears them witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. Well, what he's getting at, people generally know right and wrong in all cultures. Whether they have God's revealed word, then we know absolutely what's right or wrong. Uh, we have it documented, but Internally, God has given mankind an awareness 
of what is right and wrong. It's distinctive of all other creatures, isn't it, that we know of in the earth. They don't, they don't have that. You, know, you, you don't have monkeys taking one another to court. Right? Okay, maybe we do. <coughs> I, I'm sorry, I digress. You get the point. Mankind has a unique awareness of what is right and wrong. We might not always agree with what is right and what is wrong, but we have that. And when we don't pay attention to it, then, and, and that which is morally wrong, of course, is sin, and we don't pay attention to it, it, it can affect us in great ways. Sometimes we fail to pay attention to it, um, I'll, I'll read this in Romans 7. You can look it up if you wish and follow along. 7.7 7 of Romans. God has given us an, an awareness in our own heart. And one of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons he established the law of the Old Covenant, as we'll see here in Hebrews chapter 10, is to remind us, of right and wrong, to remind us of sin. Paul would say in 7.7 7 in Romans, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What he's saying is absolutely what is right and wrong. You're going to find that in God's divine revelation. He says, I wouldn't know what it, would, what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The problem is not the law. It isn't the right and wrong. It's my own heart is what he's saying. And, where, and what is the problem with the heart of man? It is sin. That's the word. S-I-N. Sin. Sin seizes my heart. He says, um, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. What, what he's getting at is that, uh, that it, uh, the law then clearly reveals what is right and wrong. It, it keeps you from ignoring, if you will, and not listening to the very conscious of man. He says, it lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in and sin came alive and I died. That is, he recognizes violation against God, the wages of which is death. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Because, you know what, if you follow God's law perfectly, you'll live. And the problem is you can't, and you don't. And therefore, the wages of sin is death. This is why God had put it in to, to make that more clear of the problem that we all face, which is sin. It is sin in our own heart. It isn't so much the external, it is the internal that he's talking about. He says, for sin, seizing every opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And that's the problem. You made it less than what it is. You see plainly what it is, and yet deceived by sin. And it kills me. So the law then, he says, is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is the sinful heart of man. What's sin? Well, Westminster Confession says, any want or conformity unto or transgression of any law God has given <coughs> as a rule to the reasonable 
creature. Our little Tune My Heart catechism we use for the children we puts it this way, sin is any transgression against the law of God. And that's a good way to think about it. John would put it this way in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. See how he's comparing? Well, what is it? It's against the moral law of God. Sin is lawlessness, he would say. It includes disobeying God's law, both in a negative sense and also in uh, failure to do what is right. So it's not just doing wrong, it's also a failure of doing that which is right. James would say in 4.17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, we conclude and have no wonder that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This Levitical system then that was put in place for a number of reasons, of course, ultimately a shadow pointing to the substance of Jesus Christ who would come to die for sin, but it includes in it a reminder of sin and that can be helpful. If you're back to Hebrews chapter 10, do you see that in verse 3? Because it's, a, it's very easy to think about sin in a theoretical sense, but not in a real sense in your own heart. And that's part of why the system was put in place to begin with. Verse 3, these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year because they continually go. And here in this is a reminder and this entire system was bloody and awful. You would not want to look at it, pay much attention to it, and yet they are um, constrained to do so and to be reminded of it. Uh, and, and, and you can go on and I detail in this sacrifices how awful it was. And, and, and many of them, they would actually take, even in these <clears throat> animal sacrifices, take an animal into their home like a pet. And you could imagine the children becoming fond of this animal. And it was a beautiful animal without blemish and without spot. And then they would take it down to the temple and kill it. And not kill it in what we might think is a humane way, but an awful way, a slaughtering. And, and I can't, I'm not going to go any further than that. But you could imagine how awful all of that was. Well, that reminds you how awful sin is. It's that terrible and worse. Whatever you could imagine, you're you're not imagining enough. In that sense, then, this law, the system that they did, it provided a reminder of the consequences of sin, which is death, and then the need for a way to resolve that, to remove the guilt of sin that brings about death. And this reminder is really important because we naturally forget. We forget the real problem, the consciousness of sin. We forget that, that consciousness, another way to think of it might be guilt, 
that, that weight that you carry around for doing that which is wrong, and your mind reminds you of that, so what will you do with that? The awareness of the sin, this guilt for that, is a critical problem that mankind faced. By the way, uh, R.C. Sproul wrote a little book on that. I think I handed it out. I think it's a pretty good little uh, explanation of guilt. But one of the things he uses with that, or did, was to ask people this simple question in an evangelistic way. What do you do with your guilt? And it might be a good question for us to even ask ourselves. And if you listen to the response, um, there'll be many, all of them, to cover up and to push it out. Few will really point to what you can do with your guilt, and that is to confess it and to receive forgiveness from this one, Jesus Christ. What mankind typically does when they recognize they're guilty is mask it. They engage their mind in ways in which you think about something else rather than the consequences of your actual sin. You know what God's righteous decrees are and what is the penalty of it, and yet push it out of your mind. Push it out of your mind by maybe minimizing it. That, that is, think in terms of guilt as comparing to someone else who might be more guilty than you. That doesn't remove or take away guilt. But pretending it doesn't exist doesn't deal with it. Minimizing it, as Paul would say, uh, we dare not classify or compose, compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You know what you're going to be compared to? The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The, the symbolic uh, portrayal of a, of a perfect animal is, is, is portraying the perfection that is in Jesus Christ. So comparing yourself to someone else, thinking, well, I'm not that bad of a person compared to them. How, how do you compare against Jesus Christ? Well, I'm guilty then. <laughs> because there, there is no guilt in him, not even a bad word, not a bad thought, not, certainly not a bad deed. So what many people do is then, how do they deal with the consciousness of their guilt rather than confess and go to Christ? They will redefine it, that is, make it something that it isn't. And we do that a lot today, but that's not new. Isaiah warned about those and made a, a judgment call that's called a woe. That means you're under judgment for doing this. Those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What a, what a, what a beautiful way to describe something absolutely ugly. And I think you can understand the implications and applications of that as well. Redefining, oh, well, it's not that bad, it's something else. No, God defines what sin is. It's lawlessness. It's against his moral and holy law. Others might mask and minimize and redefine 
and engage in, and in their case here, rituals, that is, religious practices, thinking that somehow God would like them better. And this is very popular in religious circles. Just give a certain amount, go a certain amount, and do a certain amount, and God would like you better. That doesn't work, friends. That will not take away your sin. I mean, you should obey Christ. You should do all that you're called to do, but doing them is, is going to fail. Notice if you're back in Hebrews 10, verse 5. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. What do you mean by that? God, God set up this whole system of sacrifices and, and offerings, but what is he talking about? You, you don't desire, but instead he says, a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings, verse 6, and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Again, the, the pleasure he's talking about is satisfaction. They're only symbols. So, so this is not what God wants, is just to engage in ritual. Yes, if there are certain rituals that were required, they, they needed to do them, for sure. But that wasn't going to bring about or accomplish a, an atonement for their sin. Instead, he says, a body you have prepared for me. All of these practices that they engaged in have a tendency to assuage your conscience, to push away the weight of guilt because your focus is in doing these things. These things, even good things, and doing good doesn't resolve the problem of the guilt of sin. It doesn't remove sin. Instead, all of these practices should remind us of the need for a true cleansing because we don't fulfill those practices, whatever they are, perfectly. They didn't, and we don't. Look at verse 4. He makes this emphatic point that needs to be remembered, and in their context, the, the rituals that they engaged in Verse 4 of chapter 10, it is, do you see it? Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He couldn't be more clear than that, could he? There have been some who erroneously taught, and perhaps still do, that somehow there, that this sacrifice that they did in this ritual was efficacious for sin. It's not. It, it was never designed for that. It, it, it was never designed to take away sin. Note the term here, it is impossible. They were merely symbols of what would take away sin. Jews were not saved under the old covenant by their rituals. No one is saved by their rituals. No one is saved by their church attendance, by their giving, by their being good and doing whatever they do. That will not buy you back from the debt that you owe. And the good news is there is one, and that is Christ. That's what it all points to. So verse 5, you see, consequently, that's what he's getting at. 
Consequently, since, since none of that can do it, consequently, God sends someone who would do it, and that is Christ. L- listen to Peter, who talks about the redemption that is in Christ, and this is a Jew. He says in 1 Peter 1.18, I'll read, knowing that you were ransomed, that is, purchased back using that imagery, the debt you owe, that debt is paid is the imagery used. <coughs> You're ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. The futility that you inherit is the sin nature, and hence the actions of sin. You're not, you're, you're ransomed uh, from your feudal ways, not with a perishable thing such as silver or gold, but what? The precious blood of Christ, like, and for those in our symbolic uh, interpretation class, that should ring a bell, like, hence a symbol, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's how you're going to be ransomed. It's the only way you're going to be ransomed. It's the only cure for all of mankind. It is Christ. And it goes on to say he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. I've mentioned that before. That is, God in this unique relationship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, all of this was planned out, including the ransom, and it would only come through the death of Jesus Christ, is what he means by the blood. He, a perfect one, would take on sin and die he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but then he is manifest in these last times for the sake of you. So here's the incarnation that he's speaking of coming. That who through him then are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope would be in God and God alone, I would add. There's only one thing that can take away your sin as we sing, ladies, the precious blood of Jesus, right? The Old Testament sacrificial system of the Old Covenant had no way to remove sin. It was impossible. So now look at verse 5 then. He sends Christ. Now here he makes this quotation from Psalm 40. And you can look it up later, if you wish. I'll read it for you because the wording is slightly different. But here, he's quoting. And by the way, this is why we put so much scripture in our preaching. This preacher in Hebrews is a great model. If you're preaching or teaching, refer back to scripture because it's authoritative, right? And it connects all this together. And so that's what he's doing. He's quoting a section from Psalm 40 when he says in verse uh, 5, Sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Right? And then he goes on to say, this, In these burnt offerings, sacrifices and your pleasure, uh, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. God could write this down of all that was going to happen. Why? As we started, because he's decreed this from the very beginning. This is not an afterthought. This is what God has intended to do all along. 
Now, I'll read for you this psalm, because if you happen to look it up, you'll see the wording is slightly different. And in Psalm 40, verse 6, and I'm quoting for the ESV translation here, it says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, and that has the same idea as we've translated desired here and talked about. <coughs> you have not delighted in. That is, it doesn't bring about uh, a washing away of this guilt. But, and here's the difference in the phrase, and I'll explain this briefly, but you have given me an open ear, it says in Psalm 40 and verse 6. Compare that, a body you had prepared for me. I'll explain that in a second. Burnt offerings and you have not required. Then I said, behold, I'm reading from Psalm 40. I have come, in the scroll of the book is written to me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. This is a messianic psalm, and the phraseology is a little different. The, the point here, again, is that this sacrifice is saying the same thing. This is where this preacher of Hebrews is getting it from. He's saying this, this sacrifice, as we've mentioned, doesn't delight or satisfy God. The, that is this ritualistic act, even though it was required of them, that this, it was mandated, if you will, but it doesn't actually address the consciousness of the sinner. It just reminds the sinner, that is, makes their conscience more aware that indeed they are a sinner and that they need to have an actual atonement for sin. This ritual doesn't fulfill, appease, or fulfill the requirements that God has in his justice. Now, to explain that ear thing that's mentioned, you have given me an open ear, it says in Psalm 40, but it's translated a body you have prepared for me. Technically, what he's doing, that is the preacher in Hebrews, he is explaining a Hebrew idiom by quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and this Hebrews is, of course, written in Greek rather than the Hebrew. The Psalms that I read that is translated an open ear is Hebrew. The Greek translation that they would have had says a body. What's, is there some inconsistency there? The answer is no. What he's explaining and why the translation in Greek says body and why it says it in Hebrew is because in a Hebrew idiom, one part represents the whole. And the imagery that's being used in the psalm is as if you had clay that was formed and you stick your finger in it and you dig out the hole, the channel, for an ear, right? That is, you've, you've made this body, and it is a substance that isn't just some blob or form of something. It is actual, and it can actually hear. And that actual hearing affects the, the very heart. It is here not just to be able to pick up audible sounds, but here in the sense that it, there's a heart there that will then Follow what is being heard or obeyed. That's the whole imagery then, the idioms or, that they use 
here is to explain the idea that there is a body that is sent. That is, it will take not these ritual sacrifices, but a body formed by God. And here I'm going to go chase a quick rabbit, maybe quick. I think this is essential to to recognize the sanctity of human life at this point as well. When he talks about this idea of a body that has been given, and in the imagery of the Psalms, the, the forming here of a body and the various parts and the components, it answers really a question, and that is, when does life begin? And for those who are up on that debate, they'll say conception, and then people will redefine conception as something different and argue all of those lines. I'm not going to waste my time. I'll just simply say this. Life begins with God. Life begins with God. I'll read for you and and just think about God's incredible creation and you in particular as he created you. It is God who ultimately gives ears physically. For you form my inward parts, David would say in Psalm 139. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O God. You you, you see, where, where God forms every part, What wonderful are your works, O God. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you. By the way, my newest granddaughter on the way, her name means that. It made me think about that. Hazel, or Hazel in Hebrew. El is God, and Haz means seen. God has seen. Can I tell you, God sees all of us, even before anyone else saw, before anyone else knows that God knows that's how wonderful and he recognizes that when my frame was it wasn't hidden from you I was being made in secret intricately sorry intricately woven in the depths of the earth if you will your eyes saw my unformed substance and then here it is this is why I wanted to get to this more than anything besides thinking about my granddaughter. In your book, they were written. Let that wait on you for a minute. In your book, they were written. The imagery there is that of God's decree. Do you see how that connects? All along, God knows. Before my unformed substance... I would say even before the, uh, the heartbeat, okay? God gives life, and in that, you're in his book, it's written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet when there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. That's where you end, you know? You, you may not be able to, to parse all that out, in a theological debate, that's okay. Just read the scripture 
and glory in God. That's the whole point. Life begins with God. And should I say it isn't just physical life, it's all of life. It's even spiritual life as we call it. Ultimately, it's God's work. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, looking to the physical world, he points to God, God who says, let light shine out of darkness. You understand, that, that's before there was a moon and a sun. Okay. God doesn't need a sun. He doesn't need a moon. He is light, and the light is the life of men. So God says it all begins, it all continues with him. Physically, he creates the world and demonstrates, as Paul would say, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Life begins with God. These, sorry for the rabbit trail, I just had to go there. These ears that are mentioned, this body in Hebrews, it not only points to the necessity of the incarnation, that is not an animal, but a man, but one that is perfect. And that is what's required, and that's what we don't have in our sinful state. But, but he has perfection. Notice, if you're back to Hebrews chapter 10, <coughs> verse 7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. What he's alluding to there in quoting the psalmist is a per- perfect will. That is, a perfect obedience. You see, God not only requires an appeasement, atonement, a propitiation, if you will, for your sin, a covering for your sin, which is accomplished through the blood of Christ, that is, the death of Christ, but also there is a merit that is required, perfect obedience. And none of us have attained that. And in no religious system will it be perfect obedience. Go sit there and try to fulfill all the, I think they've defined them under Judaism, the 613 laws that they have. They don't, they don't, um, they don't uh, perfectly fulfill any of them. And I don't either. There's always a motive that I don't even see behind my actions. There is nothing perfect. All of my righteousness, as the prophet would say, is as filthy rags to God. Because you know why? They're all stained with sin. So you don't keep that. You know what you need? You need perfection. You need perfect cloth, if you will. And so God must prepare one who is perfect. And that is Christ. Because we need our sin covered. Christ has come to do his perfect will. I'll end on one more thought. 
concerning this. And that gets back to verse 11 in our text. I'll back up to verse 9. It says he... He, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. This is why we call it a new covenant, because it supersedes or it replaces that which is old. All that which went before has been fulfilled or accomplished in Jesus Christ. So you're not under the law. You never could obey the law perfectly. You would always stand condemned by the law. And your conscience would be reminded of the need for a fulfillment, a perfect fulfillment of it. But Christ has done so once for all. Look at verse 10. We have been made sanctified, that is set apart unto God through the offering of the, notice here, the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And I would argue that this body being referred to here as is, as I've said, both in the uh, atonement, propitiation for sin, taking on our guilt and dying for it, but also meriting the perfection that is all of Christ. When we take this Holy Communion, we do so in remembrance of Christ, right? The two elements, the body and the blood. Now, I just want to finish off with this one final point here, and that's in verse 11 and following. <clears throat> Every priest, he says, is at his service doing these same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Sort of futility. However, Christ comes, verse 12, and for, for all time, note this, <clears throat> it isn't just for then, it's for now and forever. All time, a single sacrifice for sin what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I actually had a deacon at a church, wasn't very well informed. He asked me, whatever happened to Jesus after his resurrection? Whenever I think of this, I always think of that. Poor guy. Well, he didn't know. Well, I'll tell you right here what he's doing. He's at the right hand of the Father. That is, he is in authority and power. Remember, the preacher in Hebrews began that way, talking about Christ, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power right now. That's why things aren't going to fall apart on its own. He will destroy it. He will remake it. But until such a time, he is holding it. This is why you don't need to panic. You need to be responsible, a good steward, but don't panic. Go to Christ. He's taking care of it. And it says that he has then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what he did after atoning for our sin. He sat down on the majesty on high. This is um, contrasted, if you note, in our text here about these priests, what are they doing? In verse 11, they're standing because their work's not done. It, it never will be done. It, they're, they're not finishing. That's the difference between standing and sitting. Sitting means it's done. What's done? All of it. To the very end, it's done. 
And all that needs to occur is <coughs> the completion of redeeming a people for his name. And he is waiting, verse 13, until all enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So here you have the imagery of a conquering king. The fatal blow has already been laid. And it's just the mop-up. It's just the final. It's like your team up by 30 points or 35. I watched a game last night. 35 points or so. And there's only 50 seconds left in the game. Well, the other team just quit because they know they weren't going to score 35 points in 30 seconds. Well, that's the imagery here. It's just a matter of time. He has already sat down in authority, and he's just waiting then for the completion. Where's your hope? Is it in him? And I'm out of time, but I just will finish off with this from chapter 1. You want to go back here with me and look at it and think about the glory of Christ who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He began this way to call you to look towards Christ and to the Hebrews in particular, who they had great exalted view of angels because of many things, the messages that came from them, the power that they had, the glory that they had, they don't compare to Christ. And that's what he's saying. And I'll end with this because I just think it's good to hear and to be reminded of Christ in the position that he's in in relationship to your sin and the sin of this world and his conquering. He says, when he brings the firstborn in the world, that is verse 6, prototokos, that means the first in the sense of there's no second. He, he is the top. That's what it's talking about. He says, let all the angels worship him. The highest thought that they had they're to bow, of creatures, that those creatures, they, they bow down to Christ. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They, they do have a function. They function as servants. That's what ministers mean. But notice, I'm at verse 8. But of the Son, he says what? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your um, uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Uprighteousness is his his perfection. This This is Christ in perfection. Christ, who is God, he is rule over all. It says, then in, in a practical way, as he came incarnate, you, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness, demonstrating his perfection. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, and here's he's alluding to Christ is, is God at the very beginning in Genesis. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are then the work of of your hands, they'll perish, okay? They will. He's already told, you could read about it in the book of Revelation. They're going to perish. They're temporary, but you remain. They're all going to wear out like a garment, 
like, like a robe. You're going to roll them up like a garment. They're going to be changed. And, and that's why he will destroy. He, he will re, re, think of it like this. He, he will recreate it in absolute perfection. However, there's nothing to be changed about Christ, but you're the same. And your, end, your years will have no end. Which of the angels did he ever say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? They have a great purpose because Christ sends them out. Christ will send out his messengers so that you will hear his voice and follow him. Let us pray. Father, I pray our assurance in Christ would be increased. We've heard of this great word of Christ who has not only cleansed us from our sin, but has conquered it. And I pray our hope and trust will be in Christ. May we find great comfort in his sovereignty and believe the promise to destroy all that is evil, to create a new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We typically give you a moment now to think on these things. If you want to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you don't need to confess to me. Confess to him. Call out even now. Think on these things. I'll give you a moment now. Father, we're thankful for the work of Jesus Christ. May we behold Christ as sovereign Lord. Confess it not just with our lips, but with our life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you were playing that song about Jesus washing our sin away. And you shouldn't have done that because I'm going to make us play it. What number are you at? 249. You girls are so sharp. I think you can handle it. 249? Thanks. Thanks for putting up with me. I'm going to have to wing it. <laughs> all right, let's all stand and turn to 249 in our hymnals. <clears throat> Jesus paid it all. 249.
Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the ones who act in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. Amen and amen. Father, we just pray that you would bless us now as, as we go to the fellowship hall. We ask that you would bless our fellowship time and bless all the food provided to our bodies and strengthen us with it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.